much anticipated weekend for college football fans. It's finally here. Go Tigers. God help me for starting a sermon like that. Well, from this point forward, our weekends will be filled with much more calories, jambalaya, tailgates, house parties. Our conversations will tend to gravitate more and more toward coaches' polls and next weekend's score predictions. That's just part of it. But for all the hype and anticipation, it's surprising to see that the student sections at these great big college football stadiums are remarkably empty. Even for football powerhouses like Ohio State and Michigan, Florida, and even, yes, LSU. Ben Cohen from the Wall Street Journal writes that according to an analysis of stadium turnstile records, okay, from about 50 public colleges of top-tier division football teams, average student attendance is down 7.1% since 2009. What's the reason? Well, some blame ticket prices, but that's never stopped anyone before. Some blame boring, an, an increase in boring and lopsided matchups, to which LSU fans would respond, we're very sorry about how awesome we are and how predictable the games are. We're sorry. The real reason, it seems, for this decline in attendance is due to the increased quality and convenience of televised games. Why go into the stadium when I can watch the game from my own personal tailgate? Why sacrifice legroom in those crammed stadium seats when I can sit at home in my favorite recliner in the living room with the remote in my hand? These are questions you've asked yourselves as you've checked the humidity for the upcoming tailgate, upcoming game. But have you ever thought of the effect that your absence might have on your team? Your empty seat means one less, one less, Noisy voice contributing to the whole, contributing to your team's home field advantage. Without your encouragement, without your presence contributing to the whole, the whole team, your home team, inevitably suffers. And coaches are very concerned about this. Well, the same is true of the local church. When we view our role as mere spectators, mere consumers, not as participants contributing to the whole, the whole team, the whole body inevitably suffers. In the church of Jesus Christ, everyone has been given a role. The New Testament refers to this role as a spiritual gift. And the goal of the Christian life is to use our spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, to build up the team. Our text for this morning, as Dr. David said, is Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. That's page 977 in the black Bibles we provided for you. Aren't you thankful for Bibles we can read? Isn't that awesome? Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. He's telling them 
about the gifts that Christ has given to the church. And let me briefly inform you of the context. So once you arrive at Ephesians 4, uh, look just before verse 11 at verses 8 through 10. These are three verses that have confused many, myself included, yourself included, included undoubtedly. But when you read them in context with Paul's larger thought, which is what we're trying to do, they make a whole lot of sense. So listen to verses 8 through 10. Let's actually start with verse 7. Remember, Dr. David read, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now stop for a second. You might say, what do you mean? You mean somebody has more grace than I have? Well, Paul's not talking. This is going to be great because it's alliterated. Um, Paul's not talking about saving grace. He's talking about serving grace. Eh? So that's, that's a good way to remember that. Don't be astounded as you read this text. Paul's saying that we've been given different measures, different types of serving grace from the same source. So let's continue reading verse 8 through 10. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all, he- all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So, Paul describes Jesus in these verses as a mighty warrior king who came down from heaven by his incarnation. He conquered and plundered demonic powers, by his crucifixion and resurrection. Are you with me? Then he returned to heaven with these captured powers by his ascension, much like a victorious, a a triumphant warrior would return to his homeland with spoil after a battle. And then Jesus sits on his heavenly throne and dispenses these powers to his people as spiritual gifts. And Paul tells us, beginning in verse 11, which is our text, what some of these gifts are and why they've been given to us. What some of them are and why they've been given to us. So follow along in our text, our real text for this morning, verses 11 through 16. And he, that is Jesus, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. 
Here's the point. The risen and exalted Christ, whom we just read about, the risen and exalted Christ has given us specially gifted ministers in order that we might be equipped to use our gifts to serve others and grow in Christ together. That's important, so let me repeat that. Christ has given to us, to the church, specially gifted ministers in order that we, as church members, might be equipped to use our gifts to serve others and grow in Christ together. So let's look at how Paul develops that point in three parts. Three parts we're going to look at this morning. The gift to the church, the goal of the church, and the growth of the church. The gift, the goal, and the growth. First, the gift. We see in verse 11 that Christ has given the church gifts. In this case, specially gifted ministers. The first gift Paul mentions is the apostles, those who had been sent out by Jesus to preach the message of salvation, the gospel, to the world. So think of Jesus' 12 disciples, including Matthias, who replaced Judas. Think of Jesus' own brother, James, who saw Jesus and was sent out by him. And then think of Paul. He refers to himself as the last and least of the apostles. Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, was converted, and then was sent out. Sent out. Apostolo is the word. Sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel. All these apostles were sent out by Jesus to the world to preach the gospel. And not only were they called to preach the gospel, they were also called to preserve the gospel against false doctrine and corruption that was constantly coming at it. That's why many of these letters were written. The implication is that the true gospel, the one we believe, the one that has come down to us today, only made it here because the apostles preached it and preserved it and protected it as Jesus commanded them. What a gift. What a gift from Christ. All part of the plan. The second gift Paul mentions is the prophets. Now, you may not be quite as familiar with these people. They don't get as much press in the New Testament. But the prophets were those men and women who worked with the apostles, worked with the apostles to deliver God's message, the gospel, flawlessly to the churches. So the difference between the apostles and prophets was that whereas the apostles received, learned about Jesus directly from Jesus, the prophets learned about Jesus directly and miraculously from the Holy Spirit. Both gifts, apostles and prophets, were responsible for laying our faith's foundation. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of, you guessed it, the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So again, these gifts are given to the church by Christ. But Paul's list goes on. The third gift Paul mentions is the evangelists. Now, in one sense, we're all called to be evangelists. 
but the evangelists to which Paul is referring here are those who are actually pretty good at it. (laughs) These are the people who have been specially gifted, specially gifted with a heart for the lost and an ability to communicate the gospel clearly and winsomely to them. And unlike the apostles and the prophets, uh, the evangelists still roam the earth today. Think of uh, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, Louis Giglio, Sammy Tippett, who spoke to our men recently at a, at a men's night. And undoubtedly, God has blessed us with evangelists in this very room. I can think of several. Evangelists make the gospel plain to the lost and bring them into the church where they can be nourished and cared for. And that brings us to Paul's last gift in this verse, which might be listed, I realize, as two gifts in your Bible, but we have very good reason to believe that these two gifts can be hyphenated and combined based on the way Paul uses these gifts throughout the rest of the New Testament. The last gift is shepherd teachers. We can just hyphenate those two. Shepherd teachers. These are the men who tend the flock of God, shepherd, and who teach the flock of God, shepherd, teacher. Today, we simply call these men pastors. They follow the example of the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, in protecting the flock, caring for the flock, laying their lives down for the flock. And they also feed the flock through God's word and the Lord's Supper. So your pastors, your elders are a gift from the risen and exalted Christ to you. Christ loves you, and so he gives you good gifts so that you might thrive and flourish in him. Okay, so now that we've looked at these gift people, if you want to call them that, as individuals, let's step back for a moment, look at them, and ask, what do all these gift people hold in common? They all hold in common the proclamation of the Word of God. The proclamation of the Word of God. But why does Paul elevate these teaching gifts above all other gifts? He makes no mention here of gifts of administration, healing, uh, hospitality, speaking in tongues. And this is no mistake because Paul does it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 28, listen to this. Paul says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Sound familiar? Then miracles. Then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Why the favoritism toward the teaching gifts? Well, The precise answer, in the words of John Stott, is that nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. Nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. Jesus Christ has given, is giving, and will continue to give to His church the divinely gifted teachers it needs to grow in spiritual maturity. That's a promise. 
but that doesn't get you guys off the hook. We've looked at the gift. Now let's look at the goal and answer the question, why has Christ given us these gifts, these specially gifted ministers of the word? Why has he given them to us? What's the point? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Christ has given you these special, specially gifted ministers, pastors, elders, teachers, so that through our teaching, through this very sermon, you might discover your gift, develop your gift, do your gift. And you have no excuse to forget that. They all started with the letter D. I worked very hard. Pastors alone don't build up the body of Christ. Sermons alone are insufficient for building up the body of Christ. Saints together build up the body of Christ. But this goes against many churches' expectations for their pastors, doesn't it? Authors Colin Marshall and Tony Payne have recently written a very important book addressing and correcting these unbiblical expectations many congregations have for their pastors. It's called The Trellis and the Vine, The Ministry Mind Shift That Changes Everything. I'll let you borrow it if you promise to give it back. But I encourage everyone to read it. It's very readable, very important work. And in this book, the authors describe two pitfalls, two unbiblical expectations of pastors that ultimately hinder a church's spiritual growth. The first pitfall is to view the pastor as professional clergymen. Professional clergymen. He exists to provide a service, whether that be preaching, conducting the worship service, officiating weddings and funerals, providing counseling and visitation, all good things. But he's the professional And the church members are the consumers who easily adopt a that's what we pay you for mentality toward him. It's unbiblical. It's destructive. The second pitfall is to view the pastor as CEO. CEO. In this view, the pastor is the trendy, uh, charismatic mastermind who manages the church, or as we Christians like to call it, casts vision. He emcees a fantastic worship service. He coordinates these highly successful programs through the week. He runs the church with his specialized staff posse like a department store is successfully run. He's the guy in charge. And the church members are either spectators or followers who easily adopt a have-you-met-our-really-cool-pastor mentality. It's probably how you guys think of me. You need to repent of that. It's hard. Both of these pitfall models merely exemplify our consumer culture rather than the New Testament blueprint for what a pastor is. I hope you see that. The New Testament pastor 
is not a professional clergyman. He is not a CEO. He's more like a trainer. He teaches people how to minister effectively. He's a leader and a coach. He uh, exemplifies in his own life a commitment to the body of Christ. He's He's one of the church members after all. And so he exists to help and encourage other church members to use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. So the short-term goal of the church is that all members take responsibility of ministering to each other. That's the short-term goal. But what's the long-term goal of this every-member ministry? And look, look, guys, we believe this. It's on our bulletins. All members, ministers. That's the sign of a healthy church. We believe this. What's the long-term goal for this every-member ministry? Paul gives us the vision in verse 13. Here's the goal. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice Paul does not say until we each attain. He says until we all attain. You see, when we begin ministering to each other, our selfish goals of individual spiritual stardom, faith, and the biblical goal of unified spiritual maturity emerges. The the Christian life is not a race to see who can reach holiness the fastest. It's more like a war. We're all on the same team, and we're striving to make it home together. Pastor Mark Dever tells the story of a young, zealous Christian, a gifted evangelist, actually, who attended his work his, his church for several years, but never expressed any interest in joining the church as a member. And Pastor Dever, in time, decided to ask this man about his reluctance in joining the church, to which the young man responded, Join the church? I honestly don't know why I would do that. I know what I'm here for, and those people would just slow me down. To which Pastor Dever responded, But did you ever think that if you link arms with these people, yes, they may slow you down, but you may actually help to speed them up? Friends, this is the whole point of church membership. It's the whole point. Paul is calling us to sacrifice our individual spiritual paces so that we might one day arrive at the heavenly finish line together. Isn't that beautiful? Why is that so beautiful to us? It's beautiful because it retells the story of what Christ has done for us. Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, look at how great he was, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He slowed down. When we slow down, 
for the good of others. We are imitating our Savior. That's why we're stressing church membership. Slow down for the good of others and help us grow in Christ together. Not only are we to grow into spiritual maturity together, we're also called to grow out of something. Grow out of spiritual childhood together. Do you see that in verse 14? Paul wants us to grow into spiritual maturity so that we may no longer be children. Now, children, don't think that Paul is making fun of you here. The Bible actually has a very high view of you and even asks some of the adults like us to be more like you sometimes. Remember, Jesus once told his disciples, unless you turn, repent, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus admires you for the way you obey your parents, depend on your parents, trust in your parents. But you need to be aware, children, that at your age, at your stage in life, you might easily be tricked. You might easily be deceived. Paul says we shouldn't be like children in the sense that they are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In other words, Paul doesn't want us to be content with the ABCs of doctrine. Paul wants us to be careful theologians, each one of us, not so that we can be pompous, that would defeat the whole point, but careful theologians so that we might be better equipped to help other people, to speak God's word to them clearly and accurately. The goal of the Christian life, again, is to use our spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Now, how do we do this? What does this look like from a practical standpoint, week in and week out? Well, that brings us to our last point, the growth. How does the body grow? Paul tells us plainly in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ the body of Christ grows as every member strives to speak God's truth to others. That means we don't exercise our spiritual gifts, whatever they are, hospitality, healing, administration. We don't exercise these spiritual gifts as ends to themselves, but as means to the end of speaking to others. You're earning it. You serve, you speak. Serve, speak. That's the pattern. That's the reason for these spiritual gifts. Now, what does that look like? You might be thinking, I want to do that. I don't get it. How do I do that? Well, let's not leave Ephesians. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5, the very end of verse 18 through 19. Ephesians 5, end of 18 through 19. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. How? By addressing one another in psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs, addressing one another, speech. Have you ever viewed your singing during our time of musical worship as a source of encouragement to those around you? That's why we keep the lights on when we sing. Unlike some other churches, we want to look around at our brothers and sisters in Christ and declare these truths to them melodiously. And notice that Paul doesn't prefer one style of music to another. He mentions them all. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, if it's true, sing it. This is, you don't have time for preferences. There's no time for that. You have a role to play. Speak the truth singing. Well, we can speak the truth in love by singing it to one another. That's why we sing. Here's another way. Next chapter, Ephesians 6, 4. Parents, this is for you. And a little bit on a different front. Paul says, fathers, and we certainly include mothers in this as well, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instruction. Parents are to raise their children by giving them a steady diet of instruction, speaking the truth in love. Don't you love and appreciate the way Paul says this? You speak the truth, and that can be hard sometimes, but you soften it with love. That's the Christian way. You speak love, but you give it stability with truth. And this is no surprise. This is what the Spirit produces in our lives. He's the Spirit of truth, and the first fruits that He produces is love. Love, joy, peace. Love. Speaking the truth in love to our children. Here's a a last way in a more general way. Colossians 3.16. You can just listen. Colossians 3.16. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Paul says that when we gather together as a church family on the Lord's day, that's why he says one another, He's he's expecting us to be around others. When we gather on the Lord's Day, all of us are called to teach and admonish one another, not just the preacher. And in order to do that, friends, we must walk on this campus with a ministry mindset. We've got three hours, 9 a.m. to noon, to speak the truth in love. We cannot afford to be on autopilot as we come here. We must take advantage of every opportunity to steer our conversations toward subjects that can be spiritually beneficial toward one another. We, we, we cannot underestimate the importance of our words that our words have in the lives of our fellow Christians. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has wisely said that sometimes the Christ in our own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. Our own hearts are uncertain, but those of our brothers and sisters are sure. Then he says, the goal of all Christian community 
is to encounter one another as bringers of the message of salvation. That's the goal. That's the point. Isn't that a tremendous thought? And practically, those deep conversations can begin simply by asking two questions. How are you doing? And how can I pray for you? That's it. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? And then let the Holy Spirit work through you. Maybe it begins with LSU football. Steer it. Got three hours. Encourage one another. Teach it. Speak the truth in love to one another. And look what Paul says happens when every member is serving and speaking the truth in love. Verse 16. The whole body, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We grow in Christ. We grow in love. But each part must be working properly. Each member must be using their gifts to serve and to speak, contributing to the good of the whole. Your empty seat matters, matters deeply. So what's stopping you, Christian, from using the good gift that Christ has given you? Is it because there's, you think there's something that you lack? Let me assure you that whatever you lack, Christ has provided it for you in your brothers and sisters in this local church. Only when we are together do we have everything we need to grow in Christ. Why would we distance ourselves from one another? Why wouldn't we unite with one another? We've been given the gospel. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given God-gifted teachers. We've each been given spiritual gifts. Let's respond to God's grace together by doing for others what Christ has done for us. He, he joined with us. He bent down to help us. He served us. He washed our feet, as we heard a few weeks ago, and spoke good news to us. Let's do this for our brothers and sisters so that one day we might enjoy God's presence forever together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving good gifts to your children. Help us to use all that you've given us, not for selfish gain, but for the good of others. Open our lips toward each other that we might retell your goodness again and again and again to our brothers and sisters. We desire for this church, your church, to be built upon the foundation of Christ and the message of salvation. Help us, God, to strive together to that end that you might receive glory in all we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.